Good. Well, well done to those of you who braved it today in the cold and drizzle to sit in this marquee. Uh, and also if you've joined us uh, from the comfort of your lounge at home, uh, it's good to see you as well. Is this not working, James? Are we on this one? Fine. I'll try not to touch this then because <laughs> it makes funny noises. Cool. Good. Where are we? Yeah. Welcome if you're at home as well, uh, watching on the live stream from the comfort of your lounge. We're going to be continuing today, as Jenny's just read, in our series in Luke's Gospel. Uh, you may have picked up, we just went through it together, from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 24. So it's a good long chunk, uh, but I hope uh, that we're going to get through it and make good time today. Now the verses that we, we look at today represent a real turning point in Luke's Gospel and a real turning point in Jesus' ministry so far. Uh, up until now, Jesus has been based in, in the north, around Galilee, uh, and he has kind of rooted himself in a town called Capernaum. And from there, he's traveled out to different towns and villages around there. And, and in the chapters we've read up to this point, we've seen Jesus kind of traveling out to these other towns and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, freeing people from demonic oppression. We've even seen a couple of dead people raised by Jesus back to life, restored to their families, uh, leprous people cleansed, sinners forgiven. It's been amazing. But now, at this point, Jesus' time and what he's going to do with his time shifts. Uh, and the first thing we read in chapter 9, verse 51, is that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and rather now than being based in Capernaum and kind of traveling out and back to different places, Jesus begins a, a journey, a long walk south to Jerusalem. Uh, and really, up until the last little bit of Luke's gospel, the rest of this series is going to follow Jesus on that journey, on the road south towards Jerusalem. Uh, and he's not heading to Jerusalem for a jolly. Uh, you may have noticed as we read in verse 51, it says this, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knew that his time on earth was drawing to a close. The, the time was rapidly approaching when actually he was going to go to the cross. And so we read in verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's, it's, it's a very simple little sentence. But what that encapsulates is huge. Jesus makes a conscious, willing, deliberate decision at this point to travel towards the place where he is going to be crucified. To set people free from their sins. He knows why he came. He knows how God's rescue plan will be worked out. We've read in the last couple of chapters, he's told his disciples, hasn't he? We've read him on two occasions now say to his disciples that he's, he's come to die and to rise again. That He's going to be handed over uh, and he will suffer many things. He's said that to them. He knows what's coming. Last week we read as he went up the Mount of Transfiguration and he talked with Moses and Elijah and he appeared in his glory. What did they talk about? They talked about 
the exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem, the freedom that he was going to bring about for those who would trust in him, freedom from slavery to sin, captivity to things that would hold them back, that he would bring them freedom and lead them into relationship with God. So he knew he'd come to die. And now he begins his journey to that point. It's amazing, isn't it? With that clear focus of what he had come to do, Jesus sets off on this journey. And immediately on the journey, we get a reminder of of exactly what Christ came to accomplish. So as we read from, from verse 52, we read this. He sent messengers ahead of him to some of his followers who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So some of his friends went ahead to say, Jesus is coming to this town. Get ready to meet him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now there was, we've got to understand a little bit of cultural context. There was a great deal of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay? So for Jesus' followers, Jewish men, to go into the Samaritan town and say, get ready to receive Jesus, who was a Jewish teacher. The Samaritans were not keen on that. And so they reject Jesus. They thought they knew who Jesus was. It wasn't uncommon for, for Jewish teachers, for rabbis, to travel to Jerusalem. It was slightly more unusual for them to stop off in a Samaritan village en route, but it wasn't unusual for them to make that journey. They thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they knew what he was about. They misunderstood. But because they thought they knew, they rejected him. I think so many people do just the same today. They think they know what Jesus is all about. They think he's come to spoil their fun, or they think he's just come to lay down the law or to inhibit them rather than bring them true freedom. And because they think he's come to put chains of captivity on them instead of release them into true freedom, they think they know what he's about and they reject him like these Samaritans. And when Jesus' disciples, James and John, we read from verse 54, saw this, they saw the Samaritans reject him, they said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? (laughs) <laughs> strange, like, think, man, these guys are nuts. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But Jesus, or but he, turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. See, James and John take exception to the fact that these Samaritans reject Jesus. They think they know who Jesus is, and they reject him. So James and John take umbrage at this, and they think, right, we'll show them. We're going to call down fire from heaven. Then they'll see who they're rejecting. (laughs) It's a bit mad. Now, it's possible, though, that that they were expecting Jesus to do just that. You see, because actually when we read the Old Testament, we find an occasion uh, in 2 Kings chapter 1 where Elijah, a prophet of God who uh, wasn't received as a prophet of God, people were questioning his authority, he actually called down fire from heaven on a group of soldiers to demonstrate his authority, to demonstrate I really am God's man, you need to listen. 
Um, and so it's possible, but actually James and John were thinking, well, Jesus, is, he's going to do that. And so they try and preempt him like, yeah, we know what happened in the Old Testament. This is, you're a prophet of God. You're going to do this too. Maybe they thought he would do it to show his authority. Actually, they just demonstrate that they don't really know that much about Jesus themselves at this point. They haven't understood yet who he is and what he came to accomplish. Jesus rebukes them. He tells them to stand down. He says, guys, no, we're not going to do that. And instead, he shows mercy on these Samaritans who reject him. In this moment, we get a, a glimpse into exactly what Christ came to accomplish at the cross. You see, Jesus came to save those who had turned their backs on God. Jesus came to die for those who reject him. That's what he came for. And what's more, actually, we read in Acts chapter 8, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus specifically sends his disciples to a few places, doesn't he? It eventually kind of goes to the ends of the earth. It's everywhere, but there are a few stepping stones on the way. If you're familiar with the passage, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions his disciples and he sends them to, to Judea, the, the, like the, well, to Jerusalem, to Judea, the immediate surrounding. Where else? He sends them to Samaria, the home of the Samaritans, where they've just been, where these people rejected Jesus. After he's died and risen again, Jesus sends his disciples back there. He's like, that's where you're going and to the ends of the earth. And what's more, we read a bit later in Acts chapter 8, that the Samaritans are some of the first people to accept the gospel and find forgiveness from their sins, to acknowledge Jesus for who he truly was after his death and resurrection, and to put their trust in him and find forgiveness from their sins and freedom and fullness of life in him. See, in this moment, these villagers reject Jesus because they don't know who he is. They think they know, but they miss the point. Jesus extends mercy. And after the cross, what happens? These people come to him. They see him for who he really is. Jesus came that they might find forgiveness. So instead of condemning them, he extends mercy towards them. Instead of rejecting them as they've rejected him, he extends mercy and in time, they receive him. That's not to say there won't be judgment. Actually, we've, we've read in this passage, or Jenny just read out to us, we see within just a few short verses, Jesus is actually very clear about that. Actually, there will be a final judgment for those who continue to reject him. There will be a day when it's too late. But whilst there's still breath in their lungs, there's still hope. Jesus knew that for these Samaritans. There's still the offer of forgiveness. There's still the chance to find new life in him. This is amazing, isn't it? Like Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, to die, to take the punishment for the sins of these Samaritans who reject him. And instead of being frustrated or angry at them, he extends mercy, compassion, 
He's on his way to die in their place. And they reject him. And yet he extends mercy. And he keeps going towards the cross for them. We carry on from verse 57. As they were going along the road, as they're on this journey, someone said to him, that's to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. He called someone to follow him. But that man said, or he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What's going on in these verses? Jesus is, is clearly saying to these people that following him can't just be like a, an add-on to life. It's not just a bolt-on to your life as it is. When you follow Jesus, you don't just carry on everything the same and you just kind of tack Jesus on the side. Being a disciple of Jesus becomes the most defining thing about you. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then that is the most significant defining thing about your life. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. It could seem extreme, but he's, he's saying to them, it's even more significant. It's even more important that the connection you have to God through Jesus is even tighter, even more significant, even more valuable, even more important than that of your own family. This might seem extreme, but remember what Jesus already said earlier in chapter 9. We read a couple of weeks ago. He said that following him means denying yourself, taking up your cross, living for him and for his glory, not yours or anyone else's. And really, that's what Jesus is echoing and underlining again here. See, the cost might seem high. We might read that and think, gosh, that's quite intense. The cost might seem high. But the reward is so vast that the cost pales into insignificance. The reward of knowing him, the reward of following him, of being with him, the reward of actually being with him for all eternity is so vast that any cost pales into insignificance because any cost to us is in this life, which is fleeting, momentary, just a breath compared to eternity. In him, our eternity is secure. That's what we read in scripture, right? We have an eternal hope that we will be with him in glory forever. Through Jesus, we have a sure and certain hope that we will be in the presence of God, the one from whom flows all good and perfect gifts. And this eternal perspective changes everything. See, if that's what's filling our vision, this eternal hope of being with him, then that changes how we view this life. See, the approval of God in Christ is, is of such infinitely greater value 
than anything else. That if we grasp that, then we willingly submit to him and follow him. And against that backdrop, Jesus then sends out 72. They've just heard him as they've walked along the road with him, reminding people, guys, relationship with me is everything. It's the most important thing. Against that backdrop, he sends out those who've joined him on the road, those who've left everything behind to follow him, those who've counted the cost for the joy of knowing him and following him. And he sends them out ahead of him to the places that he's going to go to. He sends them to proclaim the kingdom of God, to point people to him, to say he's, he's coming, get ready to meet him, get ready to receive him. He sends them out to heal the sick. And his instructions to them, you might have noticed, are very similar to the instructions he gave the, the 12 when he sent them out back at the start of chapter 9. And so we're, we're not actually going to spend a long time on that bit today because we, we did it a couple of weeks ago. So if you missed that and you're interested, then please do go back and listen to that. Instead, we're going to look at what happened when they return. Jesus sends these 72 out. They go to all these towns and villages on the way sent to proclaim good news, and then they come back. And what happens when they do? We read from chapter 10, verse 17, this. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. These guys come back and they are amped. right? They are they're pumped about what's just happened. They come back to Jesus and they're like, this is crazy. It's amazing, all the things we've seen. Even the demons listen to us. Now, that's significant because, again, you might remember back in chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, a couple of his disciples came down the mountain to a boy who was demon-possessed. And his father said to them, um, Jesus, please help. Your disciples have tried to deal with it. They've tried to get rid of the demon, but it's useless. They, 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 they are powerless. They can't do it. And so then Jesus sends the 72 in his power and authority and they come back to him going, what? Even the demons submit to us. When we say go, they go. People are healed and freed in your name when we pray for them, when we go and command freedom. They are pumped. And this seems good, doesn't it? Like we read it, we think, yeah, sure. Like I'd be excited about that. Like imagine it. Imagine just for a minute if it were you. Some of the things these 72 have probably just seen. Imagine if God healed someone's cancer when you laid hands on them and prayed for them. Imagine that. It'd be pretty amazing, right? Imagine if you prayed for someone who'd always been confined to a wheelchair and they jumped up and started walking around. Imagine if you prayed for someone who'd been deaf their whole life and their ears were opened and they could hear clearly. Imagine if God used you to bring freedom into someone's life who'd, who'd just been held captive and struggled under demonic oppression. Like we've read at several points already in Luke's gospel that Jesus has brought freedom to people. Imagine if God had used you in that way. Can you imagine something more thrilling than, than being used by God to intervene in someone's life in that kind of way? It's pretty exciting, isn't it? I know we're all like, we're really British and reserved. And so I say things like that and you all go, yeah, it'd be all right, I guess. I suppose. 
Like, like, it'd be amazing. Maybe you've seen and experienced some things like that. I know on occasions when I've prayed for people who've been sick, they've been healed. It's an incredible thing. It's not happened that many times. I, I wish I could say it happened more. I remember one guy particularly who had done his shoulder in climbing, um, a guy in our last church in Plymouth, and he couldn't get his arm up like beyond here at all. He's in real pain with it. And uh, he came forward for prayer at the end of a service, and I, I prayed for him. Nothing special in my words, nothing special in me. God's power. And immediately, he could put his arms up. And the next thing I knew, we used to hire a school hall. The next thing I knew, he'd like gone over to a door frame and he's like doing pull-ups on this door frame. Um, he's like, it's amazing, I've been healed. Um, <laughs> it was incredible. I've seen other things. Again, we, a little girl. She had a tumour in her brain called Lexi. And her, the, the prognosis for Lexi wasn't good. Her mum wasn't a Christian, but she was friends with a lady in our church who, who brought her along. And we prayed for Lexi as a church. And we prayed. And we prayed. And she had to go the next week for tests. And she went back. And the tumour had shrunk. And gone, it had shrunk. So we prayed again as a church. And she went back again for another test. And the tumour was gone. Now, that tumour was part of a, a kind of whole host of medical complications that Lexi was born with. She wasn't expected to live beyond kind of five or six years old. She's, she's a healthy, active, energetic 11-year-old girl now. God does things like that. And it, you've probably experienced some of those kinds of things too. It's exciting, right? The disciples came back excited How about something slightly different? Maybe imagine this. Your friend that you've been praying for and, and looking for an opportunity to, to share the gospel with hears and receives and, and comes to saving faith. That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? It would. How about what? Imagine if they then shared with their friend and their friend got saved as well. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? I think we'd probably be excited. Imagine, just go with me. Imagine if this year, as a church community, we, we grew hugely, maybe even doubled. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Seeing all those people added. I guess we'd be quite excited. We're British, so we'd get to the end of it and be like, yeah, that was good, I guess. Maybe we wouldn't come quite like the disciples being like, Jesus, this is amazing. Even the demons submit to us. These guys have seen some amazing things. More incredible than we're ever likely to see, to be honest. Some amazing, amazing things. And they come back to Jesus full of it, full of joy about it. So good so far, right? Or is it? It's interesting. You see, there are a couple of things here that are awry with the disciples rejoicing. And Jesus brilliantly addresses them both. We read from verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. See, first up, on hearing them, Jesus effectively tells them they shouldn't be so surprised. It's like they come back and they can't quite believe what's happened. They're like, this is amazing. And Jesus is like, guys, why are you so surprised? He references the fall of Satan from heaven. The enemy, the devil who's been cast out of heaven by God. And Jesus was there when it happened. Satan is a, a fallen foe. He's always been subject to the authority of the Son of God. You'll find other points in the Gospels. When Jesus talks to Peter at one time, he says, Peter, Satan's asked permission to sift you. You know that? He had to ask permission from Jesus to do something. Interesting, isn't it? He's a fallen enemy. He's, a, he's subject to the authority of the Son of God. And when Jesus sent out his friends, he sent out his friends in his authority, his power, which is above and beyond, immeasurably above and beyond that of Satan and the demonic realm. So they shouldn't have been so surprised. And neither should we. Neither should we. Jesus has sent us out in his authority to share the gospel so that people can be made right with him. Don't be surprised if you see God do amazing things in your life and the lives of those around you as you share Jesus with them. I want to encourage you, pray in faith, pray in confidence and expectation. Don't be surprised if you pray for someone and they're healed. Don't be surprised if you invite someone to come to church and they say yes and come. Don't be surprised. Remember, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Don't be surprised. But then Jesus has another caution. Just don't get caught up in it either. This is Jesus' next correction for them. They came back full of joy, it tells us. But they came back full of joy about their successes, about their accomplishments. And we're inclined to think that's pretty reasonable, aren't we? We think, yeah. I think I'd be pretty full of joy at seeing those things. And much like them, our inclination is to find our joy in our successes, to find our joy in our accomplishments, to find our joy in what we do. When we serve and things go well, when we see breakthrough, then we find joy and delight in those things. But Jesus says to them, nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As the 72 celebrated their ministry success, Jesus like redirected their focus, redirected their excitement and pointed them to an even greater cause for rejoicing, to an even more glorious blessing, their salvation. The fact that their future was secure, their names were written in heaven, that they would spend eternity in the presence of God. He's like, yeah, these things are cool, but they're nothing compared to intimacy with God. Jesus isn't saying that all joy in ministry success is wrong, but he's saying that anything that overshadows or replaces your joy in knowing him is wrong. 
It's a warning. Beware of celebrating what God does through you more than what he's done for you. Jesus is saying to them, find joy in me, not in your accomplishments. And sadly, we can get trapped and caught up in that, can't we? We get caught up in our pride and find what we can do for Jesus more exhilarating than what Jesus has already done for us. Maybe that's just me. Jesus adds this on top of what he said to them on the road earlier. Being with him, knowing with him, knowing him, it's our greatest delight, should be. It's what we were created for. And whether it's family or reputation or finances or relationships, accomplishments and achievements, none of them come close to the all-surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. It's what he's reminding us of here. The first century church leader, the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote about this reality in, in a letter he wrote to a group of Christians in a place called Philippi. We read in Philippians chapter 3 from verse 7 and 8. He says this, But whatever were gains to me, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. This, what he's saying effectively is compared to the joy of knowing Jesus, everything else is just utterly worthless. It's not even worth comparing. It doesn't measure up. He actually uses a slightly rude word there where it says, I consider them garbage. Um, it's, it's feces, excrement. I consider it all, it's like poo compared to how amazing it is to know God in Jesus. And I guess I want to ask, can we say that? Would we be as satisfied in Jesus if things didn't succeed the way we hoped? Or, or worse, if the wheels come off and it falls apart, would we still be satisfied in him? Would be as satisfied in him if your gifts and talents suddenly vanished? If your friendships and relationships never led to any of your friends and family coming to faith? If your prayers never resulted in anyone being healed, would you be just as satisfied in Jesus? Jesus says, if you've put your trust in him, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Not rejoice that you prayed and saw breakthrough. Or rejoice that you sacrificed to help the poor. Or rejoice that you were outspoken for the cause of justice. Or rejoice that you led so many to saving faith. Or rejoice in this or that accomplishment, but rejoice that your eternity is secure in him because of what he has done for you, not what you might do for him. Nothing can compete with the joy of our salvation. Having redirected the disciples rejoicing, Jesus now does some rejoicing of his own. Shall we see what he rejoices about? We read from verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And this prayer and then comments his disciples Jesus like just explodes with joy just that's the sense of what's written there he overflows with joy and what does he overflow with joy about he rejoices about his disciples seeing him and knowing who he is and receiving him he rejoices in the fact that they've come to the father through him he rejoices about the fact that their names are written in heaven What he tells us to rejoice in is his greatest cause of rejoicing too. That his prize, his people, will be with him forever. That God has chosen in his grace to reveal himself to these disciples, these infants, these little children, as Jesus kind of phrases it. It's interesting, he calls them children, these grown men, these fishermen and tax collectors and others but he's he uses the word children he's, he's, the sense is that he's saying God's chosen with these people to overlook the ones that the the world would go for he's chosen the ones that the world would overlook he's chosen those who would be considered spiritual minnows instead of impressive learned people. Jesus' followers weren't the educated, wealthy and religious elite. These 72 who he praises God for at this point, they were unschooled fishermen and tax collectors. And through these people, God's going to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. Jesus rejoices in this moment. Their standing before God isn't based on their performance or intellect. That God's choice of them isn't based on something they've done. They're children. They have nothing to offer. But in the fact that God has delighted to reveal himself to them. He says this to them. He says, many prophets and kings have longed to see what you see, but have not. What's he saying is many kings and prophets have longed to see the glory of God. They've longed to see and understand who the Messiah is, to find salvation, and and they haven't done. But those who hope in Christ, who trust in him, not on their merit, not through their works, not because they're wealthy or because they're intelligent or for anything else, but those who trust in him and follow him, find forgiveness in him to them. He reveals his glory. And they will be with him forever. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, if he's revealed himself to you and you've put your hope in him, then you have the greatest treasure, the greatest reason for rejoicing. Nothing and no one else comes close. No family relationships, no monetary reward, no achievements, accomplishments, or accolades. See, there's so much in this life that we're tempted to look to to bring us joy, isn't there? 
There's so much that we're tempted to look to to bring us joy that we pin our hopes on. We find ourselves thinking about things in this way. We think, well, if, if that happens, then I'll be content. Then I'll be fulfilled. Like, or if, if I could just have that relationship with a significant other, if I, if I were just married, then I would be fulfilled. If I get that job, then I'll, then I'll feel accomplished. Then I'll be there. I'll have arrived. If I just had that thing, then I'd be satisfied. Some of these are even good things. Maybe the kind of things that the disciples came back rejoicing in. If we could just see that breakthrough, if we could just see those people come to faith, if we could just see this thing, then we'd be happy. Then we'd rejoice. Then we'd be content. And we ask all these things to bear a weight that they can't handle. And when we start to lean on those things to feel fulfilled, then we end up disillusioned and lacking peace. We need something more solid, more enduring, more reliable. God's put a longing in our hearts that can't be satisfied by anything other than him and who he is for eternity. That's why Jesus says, don't rejoice in all those things. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that you'll be with me forever. Rejoice in the thing that isn't going to change. Rejoice in that which endures. Rejoice in that which isn't fleeting like everything else in this life. Rejoice in what will last forever. And in Christ, that's precisely what's on offer to us. And so I want to invite you, like Jesus did with his disciples, to turn your gaze on him again today. Maybe you know that you've been rejoicing in the wrong things a bit. Maybe you know that you've begun to kind of place your hopes in things that are fragile and hollow and they can't sustain them and you feel frustrated and disillusioned and you're lacking peace. I want to invite you to turn to him and to find lasting peace in him, to find forgiveness and security all eternity if you're a Christian I want to encourage you to rejoice again today that your names are written in heaven that your future is secure that your hope is certain and it's all because of Jesus and what he's done for you already and maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus I want to encourage you to look to him today don't reject him, thinking you know what he's about, like those Samaritans did. But maybe just, we're going to sing one final song, Rich is going to come and lead us. Maybe as we do this, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, or you're like, hey, I, I've tried all sorts of other things, I want to encourage you to just pray where you are. Maybe just pray very simply, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Jesus, if you are real, if you are the one who can bring me lasting hope and peace and security. Would you reveal yourself to me today? Would you help me to find that peace in you? You can pray that for yourself. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. Oh Lord, we recognise each one of us that, that we are so prone to 
to rejoicing in all kinds of things, to, to placing our hope and trying to find our security in all manner of things. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to come back to you, to find in you lasting joy and peace, to rejoice in the most significant thing. Jesus, I thank you that you set your face to Jerusalem, that you walked that road and you went to the cross on our behalf, that you suffered and died in our place, that you paid the price for our sins. The wages of sin is death. That's what each one of us deserves. And yet you willingly took it upon your shoulders and that you rose again victorious over the grave, that in you we have the hope of eternal life because you have conquered sin and conquered death. We can be forgiven and we can be free for eternity. Jesus, we put our trust in you again. And Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice that in you our eternity is secure. Our hope is certain. Lord, we rejoice in you.